Welcome to an episode of Leah and the Internet. I hope you enjoy the show. Leah and the Internet is a show featuring rotating guests who discuss the impact the Internet has on the world. So who's Leah Devin Sorrentino? I'm an artist currently living in San Francisco. In episode 15, performance artist, comedian, and writer Christina Wong discusses the impact the internet has had on performance art, audience attention spans, and how technology is yearning to replicate live human interaction. We also talk about the new ways in which artists have to hustle and shake down their friends to get exposure and dollars. So I have Christina Wong over Skype with me. And Christina, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Christina Wong, and I I identify as a performance artist because uh, it lets me do bad, body, ugly, unfunny (laughs) comedy and get grant money for it. And I also lately, like, have just embraced the label of comedian. And uh, I also write essays, clickbait essays that you've been able to read on places like Exo Jane, uh, Jezebel, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> and uh, I'm currently touring a show called The Wong Street Journal, which is coming to San Francisco to Brava Theater April 7th through 9th. And I'll be in Philadelphia the week after, April 14th through 16th. Awesome, which is my current hometown, my former hometown. I'm from Philadelphia. Yeah, it's my hometown. Uh, as well and I do not recognize it thanks Google you destroyed my hometown (laughs) (laughs) before we jump into all of our topics where can people find you online well in the year 2000 you could find my fake mail order bride website it's a site called (laughs) bigbadchinesemama.com that's actually how I know my friend Wei Ming she taught it in her class and so when I was fresh and out of college that was my college project and that was when the internet was fairly new and people had maybe live journal was just new around then yeah and before this was before SEOs and before for Google ads and you could just Google mail order bride and you'd find my site in the top 10 Yahoo searches because this is when people used Yahoo as well and I used all I just basically cut and pasted um, I coded it by hand I never barely knew how to use my own computer so that was part of the impetus for wanting to create a website as a final project I was like I'm going to finish college and not know how to do anything except sort of talk about books that I didn't read (laughs) and and it was a hit it was scary in ways because you know back then you most interactions happen for the most part face to face or in real time right and or you know maybe maybe email was the not real time interaction you'd have with somebody and so the idea that someone who was looking for pornography and would be really angry seeing a picture of me while i'm asleep was like terrifying but now this is how we interact all the time sure like you leave a message and you pick it up what is the present is very gray right so so that was that and then i, I went on to uh, make just live work uh, i was really enamored by this idea of being like a real experimental performance artist who would do crazy things and um, I think I don't know if it was me working my it probably was me working a lot of stuff out but I would just really love the medium of live art and I started making solo shows and in the course of touring one show for about nine years which is called Wong Flavor the Cuckoo's Nest I just watched the whole world change like everything from witnessed attention span shift witnessed um, the references in my shows very quickly became outdated it's all because of the internet and the way people engage each other. I used to do a show and people just sat and watched. And now I can watch. I see people texting during shows. I see people like, it's not that I'm doing bad. It's just, it's a, we're not trained anymore to sit still. Well, and it's also interesting that during any live performance, if somebody's not engaging that experience with social media, it's almost at its detriment, right? Like if you think about how audience is engaging, if they're not posting you their Instagrams, their Snapchats, their Facebook yeah. pages, it's almost not an acknowledgement 
judgment of the experience. The, I think what I get a lot is people critique that if it's not filmed or webcast, that somehow it disappears, but everything in a way disappears. That somehow that something permanent about a digital archive that someone has created around it. I, I had the experience when there were film cameras and I went to Europe and, uh, this makes me seem really pretentious or whatever, but like I did study abroad and I, I, I went through like 10 countries. I was like 21 or 20 years old at the time and, and I uh, was very quickly going through countries and I was taking pictures of everything because I, I hated the idea that I was leaving a country and barely getting to engage it, but somehow taking a photo of it made it last forever. And now it's not just that, it is the performance that you present of the photo, of the caption, of getting people to applaud your experience immediately, yeah. to talk about it immediately, but where are you really? And so my new show, Wong Street Journal, I talk about the character I present. I, I usually play a character named Christina Wong. That's my, also my name. <laughs> and in the show, I am a social media activist. Like I'm frantically fighting with people, warring with people, calling people out online, which is not too undifferent than a certain identity that does exist. Like the person who's always calling people out. Sure. And then I decide to go to Uganda to volunteer with an organization. This is something that I actually did. And it was really frustrating and scary to suddenly go from America where it's really easy to call people out when you don't have to face them to not having any Wi-Fi in northern Uganda and being called out by other people online for the way I was, you know, performing or being the part of the uh, colonizer sure. or the oppressor or the face of white privilege and uh, and really trying to grapple, well, okay, well, how do I move through the situation? Because the instinct in America might be to just like, just keep calling out other people as being the ones who fucked up. That's how I've witnessed. I've been like fascinated with the, the culture of uh, online activism and activists <laughs> constantly calling each other out, demanding apologies you know, it becomes a very scary space to say, hey, I'm racist and I'm trying to work through it. Like, that's the worst. You just offer yourself up to be beat. It's, it's sort of a hazing. Well, yeah, and it, it goes sort of back happens to online. what you were kind of saying about this idea that there's like a digital permanency. Like, people don't want to expose themselves online in a way that could create a discourse that could challenge their opinion or threaten their ideals, right? Like, it, mm -hmm. it's unsafe to do that because you might have to deal with the repercussions of like the hive mentality of not saying the right thing or doing the right yeah. thing at the right time. One of the things that I want to talk to you about was the intersection between the internet and performance art. And mm -hmm. I found an article from 2011 on hyperallergic, which I think is really funny that five years ago seems you dug like back. a really long what did time you do ago. to find that article? Did, were you like, <laughs> internet performance art death? Like, how did you... Like, 2011, who looks at that anymore? It's like, a, that's... I'm really good at my Google searches. There's a lot of articles about the, the way performance art has changed, but this one had this definitive statement of, like, has the internet killed performance? performance art. And that was five years ago. And I'm interested mm -hmm. in today, one of the thing into your work, you use a lot of internet tools to also do types of live performance like Periscope, which I think is really fascinating. Yeah, um, Periscope is, I, I feel like Snapchat and Periscope is people digitally chasing the ephemerality of theater. And there's something great about the idea of like, well, that was a fucked up show. <laughs> Good thing there are no witnesses. And there just maybe there's what people remember and tell and say. And, and there should be things that don't go on forever like I don't so every morning on my walk to the gym I call the pep talk 
to a $3 Zumba class because Zumba classes in Koreatown where I live are $3. I just talk. The way Periscope works is people can sort of message you or hit the screen and give you hearts and mm-hmm. or troll you and you can block them. But it disappears in 24 hours. And so I love sort of how vulnerable I can be with this idea of, oh, we only had this many witnesses. And that's actually what after, you know, doing Big Bad Chinese Mama and having all this hate mail lobby at me, I think what made me run towards theater was like, I just wasn't ready to expose myself so publicly um, with all the sort of shit that I had been wrestling with, like personal trauma or whatever, like something about doing it in a space where I could see everybody in the eye made it easier. But I think, you know, I do feel like we're getting in this place where digital world is trying to just replicate the things that were already there, theater, right? Or human interaction. (laughs) Yeah, I, I was about to say, I think that people are craving the idea of spontaneity and human interaction. And that's one thing that a lot of our social media communication has disseminated and has made it almost impossible to have that experience that's not archived or that's um, much more subjective and curated, where I think Mm -hmm. that Snapchat and Periscope have allowed for some of the positive things that social media does, which is the reach. Mm -hmm. The reason I like making work for the internet is because the audience is unpredictable. Mm -hmm. However, you are so far from the audience it makes it difficult to understand any type of interaction or reaction. Now, Snapchat and Periscope still keep that distance, but Periscope, you can start to see some people's interaction with you, which is still different than live performance, though. I mean, how often you can get a heckler, you can get somebody shouting at you, but Mm -hmm. is that really common, especially in an art space, right? You're normally talking to a very controlled audience. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel of late, there's been a couple incidences where I have like just seen hecklers scream out or I also see people just disengage and then they, they text or they walk out and leave. And this is not, you know, it's bad. I just think that, that we're not sure how to deal with each other in real life anymore <laughs> or just out a witness or what manners were like when I did my show in a in Los Angeles they didn't make the cell phone announcement before and they usually do and it was just batch of bananas like phones <laughs> kept going up people kept taking photos and it's like you guys I had a press photographer come during the dress rehearsal you don't have to archive this for me you can be here and just watch this and, and everybody was trying to be sweet about it after the fact I saw you know my hardcore theater friends were complaining openly like I would see back-to-back complaints like why are you taking photos someone is pouring their heart out and you're fucking going through your phone and like your fucking screen is so distracting and then the same friend was like I enjoy taking photos of you I love the show and it was like to them that was like adoration that they wanted to capture forever and I'm just like no it's fucking distracting like put your fucking phone away driving me bananas it's tough I think that there is like as much as the internet has made us all into millennials I think that that was a quote I heard from one of the broad city ladies there's still a generational divide in how we experience time space and place and Mm -hmm. in terms of what we we think as important to compete for our time i had an instance where i was at a residency and during the residency i was on my phone a lot because can i I, ask what what residency were you sure i was at the acre residency Uh, it's amazing it's in steuben wisconsin and it's run from a collective out of chicago and it's a really great experience you're in the middle of this valley you don't get any cell service the internet is touch and go Mm -hmm. but from moving so much and all of my collaborators 
writers were in multiple cities. So even though I was in this like dedicated space, this one artist got really annoyed that I essentially at dinner was on my phone and not acknowledging him. And finally I had to confess to him that whatever was happening on my phone was actually more important than his real time interaction with me. That's something that was like a hard acknowledgement that this digital world, that's when I realized that it's now superseded into my regular life, right? There's no digital and real life. However, there's still this weird management of live performance or going to the regular movies or doing anything where you're in a communal space with other people that are impacted based off of your choice to interact solely online. So I'm interested in terms of like, has the internet killed performance art? Maybe it's impacted live performance art? Definitely, I'll tell you what it has impacted. I was, I used to do sketch comedy out of college and do you remember like there was an Apple employee who stole an iPhone or didn't or you know he brought his, the sample iPhone out and then they left it at a bar and yes I remember this I <laughs> it was a big this. boo-boo and I remember we the company I worked with did a sketch on that and that must have happened a month and a half after that incident there's no way you could you can't do, do it a sketch yeah. about anything that way that's a tweet and then it's over in an hour I still see sketch it just doesn't have to do necessarily with the news thing that just happened it's more just like characters or funny situations but definitely timely news things like if you can't churn out a live video in a day you've missed the window and I've seen it happen on shorts I work with and for um, sure I did a web series for a, a while and we produced the uh, videos weekly and then eventually because of like you can understand as somebody who produces videos and, and yeah. new material weekly, it was really difficult on the two of us. So we went to a bi-weekly schedule and we realized how we couldn't keep up with staying timely because all of our content was reactions to what was happening in real time. And yeah. it, ultimately our content shifted to not being as topical, which I don't know if it put a detriment to the con content, but it the way that news and information cycles definitely yeah. impacted our choices, like impacted yeah. our artistic choices in a big way. And in the one sense, what I loved about making that web series is because you could be like silly and mo like very in the moment, but eventually just trying to keep a social presence up was mm -hmm. like incredibly overwhelming. And I know that like you churn out a lot of social media promotion. Um, I'm like, I'm genuinely Oh my God, I'm impressed. sorry. Like, I feel like I have to apologize to everybody. <laughs> no, I ran into a bunch of people last week. They're like, we thought you were in San Francisco. Like no one has any idea where I am because they, because I'm, you know, I'm basically the show in, in uh, two weekends from now. And I'm like, I, it sucks because it's like, I wish I could just use Facebook the way I used to, which is like, look at my life. Look at my, sure. but there always has to be an agenda. You have to get asses in the seats. I need to stay working as an artist. And so it's like, it's always like, look at this cute picture. And by the way, my show is rolling out. It's confusing to some people who don't live in those cities because they just go, okay, Christina's in San Francisco. It's really difficult. And especially as Facebook has changed its algorithms to relevancy over chronological order. And th it's been this way for a really long time. But if you're not willing to pay for the promotion, the only yeah. way that you can stay competitive is to saturate. Yeah. I find that with the, this podcast, you know, I don't take sponsorship. It's not any type of righteous and like agenda because I've had that conversation on uh -huh. the podcast before. Uh, I do it because I enjoy it. And uh, but to keep it relevant and top of mind, I do have to pay for my promotions. Otherwise they won't be seen, even if people say they want to see them. It's kind of this like double-edged sword where I feel like there's a lot of benefits to social media and I love that people can connect with it, but because of how these platforms are, you have to generate so much material. Artists always had to be self-promoting, but it's 
it's like a whole other animal now. And not because like I, I hear the conversation of like, oh, well, there's more competition. I think it's the same competition. There's just more avenues to be competitive in. I, well, know? it's also, it, it's numbers too now. I, I mean, I look at who big performing arts spaces used to present 20 years ago, and it was like these big European dance companies. And that also has to do with the death of arts funding. So these spaces can't afford to bring dance companies or whatever big fancy companies. And now I'm mostly thinking about venues like UCLA Live, which is now the center for art and performance. They used, uh, they used to present big things. And now it's like Miranda July and like, you know, authors that are well-renowned. They have to like go after some more name recognition. Sure. You know, and occasionally they'll they'll bring some amazing world-class stuff that no one's heard of and they just cross their fingers that their subscribers will go along with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel like just to be popular for sure that if I did not hit a few viral successes in the last few years, I don't, I, I was like, it was scary for me touring a solo show about four years ago because I was making a living doing it because the show had to do with suicide and depression and so colleges wanted to bring it because no one else was doing any kind of programming on it and definitely nothing that looked like what I was making and but I was like I was looking forward at my future and I saw a cliff that was falling of all the fucking things I wrote a blog about yellow fever for XO Jane and it revived my entire fucking career <laughs> and I was just I laughed because it was just like a, I thought that you know when I did Big Bad Chinese Mama the world was done with that topic but the beautiful thing about the internet is like there's always young 20-somethings that are finding identity politics for the first time and think it's the most exciting new thing in the world that you've made all the, you know, that you've made observations that have been made for years. You know, out of that, I got TV appearances, I got this new Hollywood manager, and now all these crazy things are in motion in my life. And, th and I mean, it also helped that I already had things I was working on. Yeah. Uh, because I don't think it's enough. I even see as an actor in LA, I also work as an actor here too, that you know, it used to be like you would audition, like someone would write something and then they would have an audition and then play it. But the, like what I'm seeing among my friends is people are just making tons of, like you said, web content and there's no real money in sight. It just sort of keeps you present as a thing or makes you popular or helps yeah. you build a following. But like, yeah, the amount of shit you need to churn out is crazy. Like I've shot six webisodes in December and I might not get them out until May because of we're using a part-time editor at friend rate and it's like killing me. Luckily it's ever green you know content it's not like about rachel dolezal or something like that <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's like killing me it's just like because Which, i know I'm i just feel like i have to explain that was the woman who pretended to be black because that was so yeah. long ago <laughs> the NAACP, yeah and, and NAACP president uh, person spokane yeah. yeah and i feel like i'll have these webisodes and i'll throw them out on the pile that is the internet and hopefully get a few thousand new followers and that that's what yeah you know and well and that some... that seems like the new art hustle right like I feel yeah. that almost all of my acknowledgement success anytime I've been asked to speak anywhere has been because I just constantly churn out content now granted I enjoy the content that I churn out but there's a there's a pressure to it and I feel that even with like producing this podcast or anything that like if I don't keep doing it then I will easily be forgotten and yeah that's kind of this fear and it's also this new way of valuing yep. yourself in this like weird digital economy we is, are algorithms yeah like, we like my goal is to be a better algorithm this year that's sad but that's for real <laughs> like when I said and I, you know it's not like uh I'm 
I'm like, I want to be better algorithm today. But like I part of my I had to lay out my career goals in terms of like, how will I find sustainability? It comes down to more paid bookings, which comes down to more followers, which comes down to making more content to get those followers. So it's just like I'm basically throwing things out for free. So people like me and somewhere at the end of this, someone wants to meet me in person at a show. And yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the like, end goal. <laughs> all, like the weird thing that has kept me going is live, like financially is live theater of all things. So for a long time, when the internet first went out, a lot of theater companies in LA don't exist anymore. I'm talking about Asian American sketch companies. They have short lifespans anyway, but a lot of them just decided to make web content because they're LA people and they want to get work. And it used to be that agents would show up at live shows and now they're just looking at what videos get a lot of hits and they've sure. had mixed success from what I've witnessed. The cool thing is I've seen it go full circle for me where I was like doing theater going, why am I doing theater? I should make YouTube videos. And then I started making YouTube videos, but I'm glad that I kept making theater because what is renumerable is something that can't be replicated and digital stuff can be replicated. It can be stolen. It can be, <laughs> it yeah, can, it be can be appropriate in a class and no one will pay you. But a live experience with me is so tailored for live people. It's so weird in a world that's so digital that that's, that's how I'm paying my house. That's how I'm like putting food on my table. Yeah. So it's it's kind of come to a nice place. It's a little scary, though, because it's so easy to be a superstar. Like so many. <laughs> uh, but but I, I have faith in at least what I do is something that not a lot of people know how to do. Sure. You know, a lot of people can make a cute video, but can, can, it, can anyone stay still? standing for 85 goddamn minutes on a hand-sewn set and talk about white privilege as it applies to Asian Americans. I don't think so. That level of depth and nuance does not exist the way it used to. And I think that that's a, a nice way of kind of indicating that the internet can't kill performance art. It can change. It'll kill our audiences. Yeah. It'll... <laughs> yeah, it could possibly, I was about to say, it could kill the audience, it could kill the pay rate, it could kill the exposure, but the it seems like the craft perseveres. Yeah, I mean, I think that what's, um, and I give this example, my show, Wong Flew with the Cuckoo's Nest, we turned it into a feature film. And that was a lot of people who are lazy about coming to theater who were like, you should shoot this, you should shoot this, because we can't all come to theater and more people will, re you know, like idealizing what it means to make theater permanent. Mm -hmm. And a couple things happened. One is people didn't come to the live show anymore because they knew it existed on video, but they didn't have the energy to go buy it on video, or they bought it and never played it, right? Because there's a, this illusion they can access it otherwise but they'll never get around to accessing it because it's not as cool as some of the other stuff they can access right away but it also prolonged the life of the tour because more people were able to find it and we're like this looks like it would be much better live which it is it unfortunately is like nothing will replicate how awesome that show is when you're in the theater with me you know so that's that's the two-pronged thing unfortunately and it's the demon i wrestle with constantly and i currently have a patreon campaign to create a production fund so that i can make more videos and I clearly outline my relationship to theater, to, to video work, is that people are finding me through my video work, but the most impressive work I make is the stuff that most people hardly ever see. What an it's amazingly most... easy segue for me. Um, yeah. In terms of talking about crowdfunding in the arts. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Let's, talk about, let's talk about how confusing Patreon has been. Like, I'm getting, so Patreon is like, it's rather than Kickstarter, which is all towards one project, it's like ongoing funding. So the person who's doing very well at it right now is Amanda Palmer, who has $35,000, if not more right now, pledged per thing she makes. So say she makes two things over two months, that's $35,000. She can sort of shake down the tree every time she releases 
releases it. That's a right now, I think I've, I think I have got two hundred dollars going <laughs> per thing I make. Uh, I can't shake the money down yet because I'm still waiting for these things to be edited. But my friends are so confused by this thing, and they're pl- like, I had a friend pledge a hundred dollars, which is fantastic. I, I'm thinking I knew immediately he probably had budgeted a hundred for the year to give to me, not sure. twelve hundred dollars or or two thousand dollars, which is uh, what his card would be charged if I released twelve to twenty things over the year, yeah. which is what my plan is to do. So he had to go. I had to go write. I, I hate having to write people personally and going, I thank you so much. I think you really wanted to pledge a dollar. It's just it's fucking confusing. No one's reading anymore. They're just like, okay. Well, and it's, so, they're so used to the other crowdfunding the way, Yeah, platforms. the way the other ones work. Like crowdfunding and, um, has taught everybody a certain way to interact with something. You're not the first person that I've seen with a Patreon account, like in in like a social circle, right? But you were the first person that I clicked in on to actually see. Because I, um, with a lot of crowdfunding, I, I am hit or miss about my opinions on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as somebody who's used crowdfunding to go to like a residency in Finland. So I'm a huge hypocrite. Did I, I found it interesting that this idea of trying to create sustainability Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. about like a digital era talks about sustainability, and in terms of art, like even a couple times during this conversation, we you mentioned like the impact of organizations financially to be able to support arts, or the impact of the internet being based off of value, and crowdfunding seems like this direct way where people are saying that they value what you do. But mm-hmm. um, with traditional crowdfunding campaigns, it's not incredibly sustainable because it's project-based. But then it's ultimately it, it's, it's exhausting. Of, yeah, it's too, creating by the a way. new. Be, I don't. I think the designers do really well when it's a pre-sale that they're essentially doing. You know, when you can pre-buy the the object. Yeah. But that's because that's scalable, right? They can replicate an object over and over again. As long as they've done their math right and they put enough money, you know, aside to, to sure. profit from it or whatever. But performers, oh my God, it is exhausting to run it. That's what I was about to say. Uh, the accountability must be like, the, it's very exhausting to run a Kickstarter or any of those things, especially when you have to create art to then thank them for the donation. That becomes like a whole other beast. But with the Patreon account, I say that I imagine that the accountability with Patreon can be very intimidating in terms of you know that this road to sustainability with this platform like you yeah. have to keep producing well, that's why no i didn't do a pledge yeah. per month and i did it per per thing because i might this web series taking so long to, to churn out that like i you know at the top of the year i was like easily 12 things i'll churn out this year now i'm like shit how yeah it's <laughs> i only churn six things out by the time you know and people set caps on how much they're willing to give me per month so if i start rolling one thing out per month you know, I might have hit my maximum. So do you personally think that like it has like this type of funding has changed the way you think about making? It has. Yeah, because there's definitely like I've written grants. I've gotten some major national arts grants and I also apply for city grants and they can be the applications are painful and it's not on you whether or not you can work for. I've worked for a week on a grant application and not gotten it. Sure. And there are just some people whose projects might be too commercial for the grant world or too obscure or too weird, but they have a, an amazing social network that that is willing to make it happen. So I feel like that has shifted things like the, the in terms of gatekeepers, it's the gatekeepers are not the same people that they used to be. The gatekeepers can now be your friends or your families. Yeah are willing to put it on but it uses some of the similar principles like you have to make a case for how you would use that money and uh and how you're going to spend it you have to budget you have to have a reasonable plan i'm 
I, I have to bitch openly that there are people I've given Kickstarter money to. I've not seen my perks. I don't know where this poster is that you said <laughs> you were going to give me or whatever, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah so it, it, it's shifted in that sense. Uh, you know, what, what is considered good work, quote unquote, good work or not. Um, but I think it, it also lets a lot of you know, municipalities and cities and, and uh, arts councils that really should be stepping up off the hook. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I'm, I'm kind of of two minds when, like, I think about specifically, because I've written grants as well or have applied to shows that provide funding based off of a specific concept. And I'm not sure how often you've done this, but I can cop to it to where you start writing very creatively about how the work you make might fit the ideology of whatever the yeah. grant is. Oh, absolutely. I've sat on the panels, too, where someone proclaims to save everybody from AIDS and all gay men and lay out entire. I'm like, come on. Like, I just want to know what the fuck you're making. Like, I don't need you to save everybody. But I think that that is that has become the subtext now is uh, it's it's the, the cliche of the college essay about the woman who, you know, you have to be a refugee and disabled and all these things. For sure. Uh, there are all these assumptions. You have to be all these. Yeah. And I don't want to. Uh, dismiss that if that is anybody's identity but like I, I what I'm saying is is now there's this assumption that all minorities just get money sure. or all like whatever and that's that's not the case right and uh, and I think that mythology has been built up yeah so I think anyway. that there's that and then there's also um to your point I think that crowdfunding allows for the artist to be funded based off of the work they're actually making however it doesn't challenge governing bodies to question what they consider art and mm -hmm. what should be inclusive and what should be funded that's not necessarily a mural that's supposed to be about social activism with two bicolor hands holding, right? Like yeah. not every piece of artwork that needs to be funded has to have this direct correlation to, it kind of questions how we value art in general as a society. And normally mm -hmm. when you, you can see grant money will get tied up into things that become like easily accessible to a larger audience rather than challenging the audience with new work. On the flip side, I don't think that like I should have to shake down my friends every time I want to make something either. So no, it becomes this... and I've, I've, I've rung them out. I mean, my Patreon's not <laughs> doing very well at all. Uh, and, and it's also because I'm pushing 600 other things right now that the last thing I need is to panhandle to on the side. So I just sort of have it up and that's why I wanted to have something ongoing. But you know, the... The downside of having something that kind of goes on forever is people this uh, built-in understanding that they can give whenever they want. Sure. They don't have to give now, so there's no urgency to come get it now. It's and just it has to be in, just a lot of love and appreciation. Yeah, and we exist in a time where urgency is usually tied to action. It's the um, only way to cut through the nonsense is, <laughs> is urgency. Christina, thanks so much for giving your insight on all of these different things. It's uh, always amazing to meet and be introduced to a performance artist who also embraces technology as a way to communicate <laughs> to audiences and kind of question these ways that we can value and fund art. Uh, mm -hmm. One more time, I know that this podcast will be released before your San Francisco show, but where can people find you and how can uh, we sing Yeah, <laughs> you can find me online, ChristinaWong.com. It starts with a K. I bought .net and .org too because there's too many Christina Wongs and I'm going to be the one on with the website. Uh, what else? You can find me. I'm, I'll be in San Francisco at Brava Theater. That's in the Mission on 24th. And that is that show is April 7th through 9th. And we have actually, one of my patrons bought a ticket for Donald Trump. 
I saw each of those shows. So if uh, Donald Trump, if you're listening to Leia's <laughs> podcast, you can come. Or basically the first person to say to the box office, I'm Donald Trump, will get that seat the night of the show. I really um, hope someone at least comes dressed as him. <laughs> I hope so, too. Um, and then if you're on the East Coast, I'll be in Philadelphia April 14th or 16th at the Kimmel. Oh, amazing. Uh, and the Kimmel's a great venue. It's so. a fantastic venue. So I'm really excited. Thanks so much for this conversation. Yeah, this really thank great. you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Help people discover this podcast by rating Lee and the Internet on iTunes. And as always, please share your thoughts and opinions about this episode's themes on Twitter, at and the Internet, and on the blog at leeandtheinternet.com. You can also find the show on facebook.com slash leeandtheinternet. Internet.